if we make this list of things, A, B, C, D, don't do these things, yeah, you know, and we restrict ourselves where we actually are stifled to not even have life, not have freedom to actually look for God and try to find God, that is what is keeping us from relationship with God. Mm-hmm. So instead, if we listen to God in our community, in nature, in the intuition that God has designed within us as being made in the image of God, yeah, we listen to that quiet whisper and we say, I want to find you, God. I want to find you, God, within my vocation. I want to find you within my thoughts. I want to find you within my sexuality, within my gender. I want to find you within my doubts. I want to find you within my anger. Mm-hmm. I want to find you even within my shame. If we try to find God, who is God to not show up for us? Welcome back to Barefoot to Emmaus. I'm Char. And I'm Byron. So, for today, I was thinking that we would talk about a very lighthearted topic, something that will not grease anyone's gears, rub someone the wrong way. We're talking Excite about, anyone too much. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about the concept of sexual sin, because that is something that the Bible seems to talk kind of a lot about. Yeah. And... Yet it remains quite ambiguous in the way that it talks about it. Like that's one of the things that strikes me as so odd is how much really Paul, more than anyone else, stresses sexual sin and its corruption and yet doesn't really expand more specifically about what he's talking about. So I was thinking that we could. Sure. We can try. (laughs) We'll build off Paul. Um, There's also some... There's a lot of focus in, like, Old Testament stuff in some cases. Yeah, but even there, the specificity of a rule doesn't explain the why. Right. You know, and so I think there there needs to be some piecemealing that mm-hmm. takes place. The first thing that I wanted to do, though, is talk about the way that I'm approaching this conversation. Mm. Uh, historically, in my life, sex has been something that has been quite shamed and then I internalized that and demonized sex and sexuality. Mm. And that actually makes up a pretty big part of my childhood uh, in terms of the way that I related to the world and the way that I related to my body. Um, that played an important role. And so as I experienced healing in Christ uh, and transformation in my life, I started to slowly, ever so slowly, unpack some of this shame. But even now, I still really struggle with it and thinking even about my own sexuality and the ways that I found liberation in exploring that both in terms of how I identify and what it means whom I'm attracted to what kind of attractions I have um, and even that as it relates to the me that is attracted in terms of like my gender and everything like that right or even the complexity of like gosh, even just someone today was saying like, oh yeah, she got divorced and then she became a lesbian. And I was like, became a lesbian, huh? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and 
I pushed back a little bit, and he's like, well, it can happen. <laughs> I'm like, yes, technically, I guess it could. I'm not here to defend. Like, I think that orientation fluidity itself sure. is something. It's just so easily weaponized as a way of invalidating the absolutely essentialness of whatever. All this to say, like, whether it's gender, whether it's orientation, attraction, practicability we've talked about before uh, versus theory. Mm-hmm of sex and sexual the ideational versus the real yeah um like what do you do with with history and trauma and like if if something is a result of trauma or can something that core to your being be a result of trauma or affected by trauma in what ways and if it is can it be holy right yeah like, okay, well, that's still just the way that it is, so we're going to operate from there. This gets to that question of, like, healing. So, yeah, it's, it gets really ambiguous and messy yeah, very quickly because it's practical and embodied. Yeah, so I guess we could start in that regard with how I identify sexually and how that relates to my lived experience. Yeah. Um, so I use a lot of terms now, and even the terms that I use don't necessarily feel entirely all-encompassing, but originally, when I first became, in 2011, I had this powerful experience with God that I would say that is when I became a Christian, that is when I became an active follower of Christ, when I when I came into relationship with Christ. Um, so in that transformative moment, there was a lot of healing that took place, and I, having still internalized a great deal of sexual shame, even if I no longer view the concept of sex as evil as I did before. Uh, For religious reasons? Or you told yourself that? It's Okay, so going back further then, um, you know, in kindergarten there's this whole culture of grossness around the taboo of sexuality where it's like, ooh, girls, cooties, ooh, boys, cooties. Right, like a a second or third grader isn't even able to, like, once they start learning the words for things, they're like, it, his his thing. Yeah, and, And you know, that's imbued in the culture. That's not something that I think is inherent, but it's something that is very easily picked up. Yes. That there's a lot of sensitivity that we are sponges to absorb that. In Finland, as an example, there is sex education that starts from kindergarten. Mm-hmm. There have been legislative attempts to have some form of similar early education regarding sexuality. And it doesn't start with sex. It doesn't right. start with intercourse. It starts with emotions. It starts with feelings. It starts with... Consent, boundaries, sure, body parts. Friendship. Yeah. You know, it starts with things that make sense to a kid who is prepubescent. Right. So it's doesn't age have a appropriate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it gives language, and it, more than anything, it gives a sense of safety and space to have conversations where you are debunking the taboo that they would otherwise pick up very easily. Because I think there's so much in our culture that communicates that taboo. Yes, but it also, I mean, I don't, maybe I'm, maybe this is too, like, precise of something, but part of the age appropriateness is establishing boundaries. Like, there's still taboos. They're just not like judged or I don't know how do you how do you put it like it would still be inappropriate there are still boundaries if like a younger child was like curious 
Like, like there's certain stuff that wouldn't be taught. It doesn't need to be shamed in order for it to still be a boundary. Yeah. You know, this is not where I was planning on going with this conversation, but I, I actually disagree. Like there's a children's book that I was reading for this family, these family friends that I was mm. babysitting for. And it was the one that the kid wanted to read. I picked it up and I was like, oh, this is very graphic. And it was basically like, how are babies made? And it was yeah. talking with anatomically correct terminology. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, this feels uncomfortable for me because I feel weird as a male-bodied person with this child on my lap reading this very like graphic sexual. It's not even, yeah, it is sexual. <laughs> um, but I was like, why, why does this need to be a weird thing? Why is this? And, you know, the kid was fine, thought it was interesting, whatever, didn't, ha- didn't react because I wasn't reacting. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, I have friends who grew up on a farm who from very early on were exposed to animals giving birth and their mother had 100 one-minute conversations as opposed to one 100-minute conversation mm. regarding right. sex and sexuality. And so from a very early age, they were used to talking about it like, once weekly kind of thing that it would just like come up because they yeah. lived on a farm and things happened, you know? So I, I do think that it is something that we are actually cultured out of. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree in a ton of ways. I just, I think there's still like, like even in all of those things, there's still appropriate boundaries. You know, honestly, when I'm, when I'm reflecting, I, I guess the boundaries that I would imagine are so intuitive for me that I wouldn't even necessarily think of them as boundaries, but they are boundaries. You know, you wouldn't talk about like foreplay and sexual pleasure in the same way with a kid who doesn't even, hasn't reached puberty, wouldn't even understand it physically. Right. You know, but like, it wouldn't just even cross my mind to talk to a kid about that. It's like, why, why would you, you know, but like, I guess that is a boundary still. I don't know. I think the reason why I'm reacting to the language of boundaries is because I think it's, we have gone too far in that direction. Yeah, you yeah, know, and, and the extent of boundaries is not actually one that is guiding rails in the sense of like a bowling ball and keeping it going mm-hmm. down the lane um, or to, you know, help someone learn how to walk. You know, you have little toys yeah. and things that hold them and lift them up or training wheels for a bike or what, yeah. you know, like they're, they're, boundaries that help aid our development. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead thinking about it as the wall that causes an internalized shame. Right. You know, like Absolutely. Look, those are the boundaries that I have an issue with. And, and frankly, by and large, in our Western society, we go far too deep into boundaries as opposed to an over-communication mm-hmm. without any boundaries. If anything, the hypersaturation of sexualized media that is still present is running in great contrast right. with the totally. hyper emphasis on boundaries. And that is part of what is causing the great dissonance within the child that causes sexuality to become as taboo as it is. To a certain extent, if you manage to keep a child from hearing anything about sex, they would be very confused yes. <laughs> thinking about their body because they wouldn't have any framework to think about it. Eh. You know, yeah. they'd be like, this feels nice, but also why does no one ever talk about it? There might be some sense of taboo, but really it's the way that we see the hypersexualization at the same time as seeing the absolute silence and even like boundaries and steering away from talking about anything sexual. It's that contrast, that juxtaposition that causes the majority of the taboo in my mind. Yeah, taboo and shame. Yeah, I, I would 
yeah, I mean, point to the musical, if anyone's seen it, of um, Spring Awakening, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, this is a society. It's, it's like a German secondary school, um, and the parents are very repressive about information about sex, so these teenagers don't know anything. Um, and it ends up really, like, messing up the lives of these kids because, like, sex is as uh, uh, natural, God-given whatever it was mm-hmm. that uh, Katie Thomas's mom, Deb Thomas mm-hmm. <laughs> said. The reason why I brought up the sexual stigma in this like, ooh girls, ooh boys, cooties kind of thing was because then after a traumatic experience that I had in third grade where I became very withdrawn and turned inward, I would plug my ears during sex ed and during everything like that because I didn't have any space to develop and grow my perspective in a way that I felt safe. Mm-hmm. And so that notion became what I consider the nucleus of my developing sexuality. And as I matured in my mind and my ideas, I basically built upon that myself where that idea of gross became bad, which became evil. Right. And so internally I was creating this paradigm of the evils of sexuality, which in some ways is a present message within church culture, you know? Yes. It you wasn't did not that pick I, it up from the ether. No. It, you know, it came from somewhere, but so much of it was the work that I was doing internally trying to make sense of it. You know, I, I had this thought that the vast majority of the messages that we internalize are actually our own processes and defense mechanisms that are trying to keep us safe and trying to make sense of a world that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And it is ourself who is trying to love ourselves. But oftentimes in the same way that an immune system is what causes the symptoms that we consider sickness. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the disease itself. It's the immune system responding to the disease in most cases. Yeah. That is what is actually causing the symptoms. And so it's kind of wild to think that, but it's, it's this reaction that takes place as your body is trying to fend off these invaders that actually causes harm to yourself too. And I think our defense mechanisms do that as well. Yeah. Um, And so my defense mechanisms here, my internal system that was trying to keep order and make sense of things was taking these messages that I either heard or that I had otherwise internalized and making sense with them as I developed. And as my body started to change and that led to a lot of shame a great deal of shame and repression. And so after this transformative experience in 2011, when I would consider myself uh, coming into relationship with Jesus. You were a high school sophomore. It was my summer going into sophomore year, yeah. I no longer considered sex to be something that was bad, but I, had, I couldn't just snap my fingers and undo all of the shame that I had internalized. Mm. You know, and so I started by identifying as asexual. Um, not that I would really talk about sex much, but like if push came to shove, that would be a term that I would use. And it was safer that way because then I didn't have to actually reckon with my own sexuality. Mm-hmm. And eventually, in a slow and uncomfortable process, I basically came out to myself and kind of to others as straight. <laughs> <laughs> or at least as I understood it then. And again, as we've talked about some point on this podcast, I feel, um, in my ongoing journey of reckoning with my own sexuality and gender, 
now I'm, I'm back to asexuality <laughs> in some part. And also a term that I use called spectrosexuality, which is basically an umbrella term that considers sexuality as a spectrum, which in itself is uh, reductivist. But for the sake of the image, a, sec- uh, a spectrum from, say, homosexuality to heterosexuality and any extent of, or breadth of that spectrum could be your chunk if you are spectrosexual. So basically, the only way that you're not spectrosexual is if you are exclusively heterosexual or homosexual. But for myself, in this journey, recognizing... You're sure it's not just attracted to ghosts? (laughs) There's probably a term for that, too. It's not spectrosexual? (laughs) Maybe. Okay, keep going. Sorry. (laughs) Scoliosexual. That's attracted to skeletons. (laughs) Um, and as soon as I was able to use different language, I was able to recognize and acknowledge different attractions. Hermeneutical liberation! Woo! Yeah, I mean, the language that we use for ourselves is actually very defining Yo, and restricting. It's, it's profound, yeah. It's, it's wild to think, what would I be if not for this label that I've always used? And when we allow ourselves to shake a label, how much are we allowed to see ourselves as multiplicative, expansive, deep and profound? Yep. It's incredible. And so as soon as I was able to be like, yeah, I'm not straight, I'm this, I am spectrosexual, because I recognized in my own life that there were a lot more non-binary people that I was actually attracted to than women and that I was attracted to them for all of what made them non-binary. And so I had noticed that and I was finally putting language to that. But in this journey, now I have started very, very little at this point, but still started to crack into being able to find men attractive and not just in an aesthetic appreciation, but in a sense of like, oh, there's maybe even some like romantic draw there. And again, it's very little at this point, but because I have expanded my use of language, I'm actually able to grow within myself too, which is cool. Kind of like the uh, uh, Inuit... 30 different words for snow. Yeah. <laughs> or the idea of color that if you use oh, greater yeah. language for color, you actually see more color, mm-hmm. which the brain is wild. <laughs> so but is that just indoctrination? I, I feel like it's... That's the uh, gay agenda working on you? Maybe. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's kind of the opposite, right? I mean, I'm thinking of Plato's cave, mm-hmm. that the language that we use is kind of like Plato's cave and that it's inherently limited. And the idea of stepping outside of Plato's cave, well, ideally we would recognize that you might see the country hills and, you know, the the valley and what is immediately accessible to you as you step outside the cave. But if you go walking, you'll see more and more and more and you take a boat and you travel across the sea and you'll see even more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of Plato's cave is not an in or out. Right. It's not like either you're indoctrinated and stuck with this fixed mindset or you are woke and you've opened your third eye, you've swallowed the red pill, you know. No, no, it's actually an ever-growing sense that we are in a cave that is inside a cave, inside a cave, inside a cave. Um, And so I feel like having greater language is in some ways stepping outside the cave to be able to recognize what is outside of that very fixed way of looking at the world right? and looking at myself. Anyway, say all that to say, spectrosexual, it's been expansive, it's been liberative. However, when I mentioned that I said I'm back to this term asexuality, Byron hinted to this earlier. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but again, if this is your first time or one of your first times tuning in, 
um, we have teased out this idea of the ideational versus the real in terms of sexuality. Now, mm -hmm. if you're not familiar with the image of the gingerbread person, basically there's this fun little drawing of a gender gingerbread person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and there's also a version with a gender bear. Ooh, okay. But the yeah, like a teddy bear? Yeah. The idea, though, is it points at, like, the outside and says, oh, this is gender expression, like how we dress, how we perform gender in some ways. Mm -hmm. And then it's, like, in the anatomy of, like, how our sex is expressed. And then in our heart in terms of, like, who we love. And then in the mind in terms of how we see ourselves. Or, like, you know, there are, like, these different layers to what it is to have a sexuality and to have gender. Particularly the sense of gender. Yeah. Um, that it is has many, many layers. So, for example, you know, if you are a trans woman, you can still want to have a beard. And that doesn't need to be mutually exclusive or wear, like, societally masculine clothing. And, right. And, and a physical expression doesn't need to align traditionally with how we understand gender to exist. Mm -hmm. That we are complicated and layered and... They obviously are integrated, and more than anything, I think a lot of it is a sociological influence. Mm -hmm. Like, this is something that I found from, you know, Hiniam and other trans people that I know. More often than not, there's a desire to run, a, to um, disconnect, disaffiliate from the gender that has been assigned, more than a desire to specifically affiliate with uh, the other gender on a binaristic scale of, of man-woman. Yeah, it might, it might appear... That earlier in people's transitions, they often overcompensate for social efficacy because it's it's safe, right? That's that's what the right. If the you journey. don't pass, I mean, it could be lethal. Yeah, and so you you overcompensate, and oftentimes, just from personal observation, that people will embrace like far the other end of of the spectrum. And by no means is this comprehensive. Right. There are plenty of trans people who trans men who very much see themselves as men in a very like boxy way or trans women who see themselves as women in a boxy way. I say boxy to be like the box that has been set up to define yeah. that gender. Yeah. Right. So people like that exist, but many people, many trans people that I know find themselves to be gender expansive in a way that is disaffiliating from the way that gender has been assigned to them, but not actually needing to, Again, after that initial period of, of safety. Yeah. And and survival. So anyway, I say yeah, all that. And I would say that's the gay agenda, right? Like mm. to free people from, you know, even if someone is really close, even if someone is full like heterosexual, cisgender, Kinsey one all the way or zero or whatever it is all the way, being able to explore and being able to like not be boxed in yeah. is still liberative. Mm -hmm. And so the, the queer agenda is not to make people queer. It's to liberate them from restrictions on gender and stuff. Anyway. Yeah, the cis-heteropatriarchy. That, that is, can be lethal for yeah. even cis straight yeah. men. At the very least, it is repressive. Right. So this idea of like, oh, I'm comfortable in my masculinity. Great. Everyone can and maybe should, I would say. I don't like shoulds, but can and should be comfortable in their gender if they can be. Yeah. But even the idea of the box 
you know, does that box actually fit anyone or do people perform it because it's what they have been taught, you know, or, or it's just semiotically simple. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's simple. And, you know, I I think with gender, uh, again, I tend to move away from the idea of a spectrum. I think in terms of a cloud, you know, uh, you can picture on a 2D plane Mm. an ellipse, so like a stretched out circle, uh, more like an oval, that has two foci, basically these points of gravitation closer to the ends, which cause the orbit that is the ellipse. Yeah, like a Venn diagram. Without but, the middle intersection. <laughs> yeah, where the whole thing is like an overly overlap. Yeah. And, and you're so, kind of off the spectrum. You're off the line. Yeah, and, and, these, and these foci are maybe man and woman in terms of gender. Um, yeah. And there are people who probably orbit very closely to those foci. Right. You know, Statistically, but, maybe a lot. Probably a lot. Yeah, I mean, there, there's going to be a gravitational field, and, and some people will be closer, some people will be, be further. Yeah. But most people are in orbit of one of these foci. How close you are to orbit is variable. There's some people who really perform a certain masculinity and people who really perform a certain femininity mm-hmm. um, that maybe is very authentic to how they perceive themselves or they've never felt the need to question it. And that's fine. Um, but I don't think anyone is the point. You know, it's not like the gravitational pull like sucks you in, bam, you are that point. You know, I think everyone is orbiting from a degree of proximity. Yeah, well, I'll also say, like, it's not all, like, this is what, essential, this is what, like, existential, queer, postmodern, whatever, does against the idea of essentialism, is you, you can never be just you. Mm-hmm. Like, who, like, what you think you are is not all of what you are. Like, let's say you're the most heterosexual, like, person. Mm-hmm. Um, the most cisgender person, like you are the point. But as su- like, if at all you ever, like even for a split moment, think that a uh, trans woman is attractive or like, right, like the concept of queerness automatically breaks certain social understandings of what it would mean to be purely, what is it, like super straight. yes. Like, yeah. it, it can't exist. Yeah, it, it, it is, in the realm of queerness, actually impossible. <laughs> but you're, you're talking about if you move at all is your point. But the other interesting thing is, well, the points are actually moving too. Right. Like the idea of what is it to be to be a man? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? That's something that's actually changing all the time, and it's actually different culture to culture. Yeah, in what culture, <laughs> in what time. And so... Pink used to be a boy's color. Yeah. If, if you want to claim you are that point, and then as the point moves, you move with it, I'm like, you're following the point. That's not you being truly you. That's you wanting to be on that point, yeah. which is, again, fine. It's, it's safe, but I would just call into question why it is that you want. I, just, I, I want people to interrogate their identities and yeah. say, why is it that I feel the need to continue to occupy this space? Right. Um, anyway, great tangent. Um, <laughs> But back to the genderbed person. So Byron and I have talked about a category that we actually wish the genderbed person had in their, in their little diagram. And that's this difference between ideational and real. And that's something that we've been exploring. And in myself, again, when I was talking about being spectrosexual, I recognize that I have attractions to people. And that can be on a romantic level. It can be on a sexual level. 
And yet that attraction never leads to a, a, a physical desire for sex. That there is a disconnect between the physiological drive towards sex mm-hmm. and the ideational existence of entertaining the idea. And so then it comes to this problematic game. Is it sexuality or is it trauma? Oh, is it sexuality or is it trauma? Do, do, do. Yeah, we need a little theme song or something like that. And it's problematic because that's been weaponized. <laughs> right. So right. heavily against queer people. Well, it's, it's like, like, oh, you're, you're only not... lesbian because of sexual assault. Right. Or, you know, or something really outlandish right. and, and harmful like that. Or, you know, like you're, you're a gay boy because your mom was too smothery and your dad was too distant. Like, sure. Oh, sure. And, you know, my first pushback to all of that is, so what? <laughs> like, what if that actually were the case? That doesn't invalidate your sexuality. And it doesn't mean that this quote-unquote return to what was is actually even in your best interest. Right. Like, things change. Things evolve. And sometimes a negative catalyst can lead to positive change. Beauty out of ashes. That's a very Christian image. Thinking about how God is redeemer. And God can take what humans meant for evil and turn it into good. Yeah, the idea of transformation as well in in any direction. Like is it has been also weaponized Mm -hmm. like this idea of christian transformation and like goodbye to the you the the past you or whatever like that's so tough but i yeah i'll bash conservative christianity that it has no actual grounding sense if it wants to say like you fundamentally you actually are this like you know god created you with an intentionality Mm -hmm. this way and god doesn't make mistakes well then we just get a really weird like pointing uh, articulation of the point. Well, what is the point? Mm-hmm. What What is God's idea of what this is? Yeah, and is there a God construction of the point versus a sociological construction of that point? Right. right. And how those differ. You know, I came up with this image of what it means to me that we are co-creators with God mm. that I actually find really liberative in this sense where I imagine us to be a little toddler who's plunking mm. away at a piano and sitting right next to us is the master pianist, like the best pianist who ever has ever existed. Mm-hmm. And they have invited us to play with them a duet. And we don't know how to play the piano. We're clunking around in dissonant little notes and whatever, no syncopation, no rhythm, whatever. Okay, Melkor. <laughs> and God is able to take whatever we make and turn it into a beautiful melody. Yeah. And so the only way that we would not be creating something beautiful with God in that sense then is if we refuse to participate. Mm. If we sit there and don't touch the piano, there's not going to be a duet. So either the master pianist makes some music on their own that excludes us or the hall is silent. And so the reason why I found that liberative is thinking about my own journey of self-discovery and all of these harmful messages that I have internalized about the fear of sin. Now, caveat, I don't think that this notion of sin is something that anyone should avidly pursue, obviously. (laughs) Um, But what is sin? You know, and we've talked about this before. To me, sin is is a break in the relationship, a break in our relationship from God. And so, um, 
if we make this list of things, A, B, C, D, don't do these things, yeah, you know, and we restrict ourselves where we actually are stifled to not even have life, not have freedom to actually look for God and try to find God, that is what is keeping us from relationship with God. That is what is keeping us from playing the piano. Mm-hmm. So instead, if we listen to God in our community, in nature, in the intuition that God has designed within us as being made in the image of God, yeah, we listen to that quiet whisper and we say, I want to find you, God. I want to find you, God, within my vocation. I want to find you within my thoughts. I want to find you within my sexuality, within my gender. I want to find you within my doubts. I want to find you within my anger. Mm-hmm. I want to find you even within my shame. If we try to find God, who is God to not show up for us? We are posturing ourselves towards relationship to a God who has already right. proactively put themselves in relationship with us. And to some extent, it's it's confessional. Yeah. Right. That type of authenticity I call a sacrament. Mm. I think this is the sacrament of coming out. Mm. And it doesn't have to be socially or on Facebook or whatever. Um, it's in authentic, in authentic relationship with God. Yeah. And then chances are, if you're safe to do so, yeah. that should be actionable in mm-hmm. the world. TLDR, if we're <laughs> too afraid of ruining our relationship with God to engage authentically, we actually don't have a relationship with God. That is not performative. Yeah. One of my, one of the worst things that uh, as a educator, future educator, as a youth leader, I just really dislike it when teenagers are like, oh, I don't know, because they're too afraid to say what they actually feel. I would rather you speak something that the church thousands of years ago declared heresy than that you remain in a box regurgitating things that you have been taught without actually caring about it without being authentically invested, you know, without it feeling real to you. Yeah. That feels so much more dead to me. So anyway, all that to say, Char, why would you want to play this game of is it sexuality or is it trauma if this game is so problematic? (laughs) Great question. I'm glad you asked that. Because... When I think about my life and thinking about how asexuality informs the way that I engage with the world, I desire a holistically romantic and sexual relationship. And it's weird to say that I desire that when physically I don't crave it. But thinking about the kind of partnership of doing life with someone, um, that is something that I... I desire that I yearn for. And it doesn't mean that there can't be thriving relationships that are merely platonic or or romantic, but not sexual. Um, That exists. And I'm grateful for those people. Uh, But I also fear, and maybe this is the fault in, you know, falling back into fear, but I fear that the person whom I find would not that there would be there would be an imbalance of sexual desire if they sexually desire me and the same isn't felt reciprocated. Yeah. Ugh, two two kind of quick questions uh, about the the possibility of trauma uh, of like what is coming from trauma? Is it what you currently do feel 
Um, or are you saying to some extent the fact of the possibility, the the possible fact of uh, having this image in your head of what you want, that that's socially like programmed or indoctrinated. That's, that's fascinating. That, w- that wasn't the direction I was going, but I think there is an extent to which that is true. And part of the whole idea of queering relationship is to interrogate everything that we think about in terms of relationship with the hermeneutic of suspicion mm. to say we shouldn't have any basic presumptions other than what our intuition and our drive toward God is telling us. And I would draw a distinction between our intuition and our feelings that I think our intuition is something that is more core and our feelings are something that have very much been shaped by culture and context around us. Yeah. But it can often be very difficult to discern what is our intuition. Yeah, And but, then responding appropriately to experience and like reason. Yeah. But I do know that regardless of what kind of relationship I have in the future or none, that the shame that I still have around my sexuality is something that is not holy. Shame, as I've said on a previous podcast, maybe it was the one that we titled Shame, (laughs) (laughs) and probably littered throughout various other episodes, I believe to be the greatest spiritual disconnector, this idea of sin. Because if I hurt you and you're mad at me, you're upset at me, Mm That might last, you know, the pain was only a moment. We could immediately reconcile. Mm -hmm. You could be like, you hurt me, and I could be like, you're right, I'm sorry. If I accept accountability, we can find forgiveness, grace, and and move through that. It's not move past it in a way that ignores it. Right. But we we develop through that. that And you can't put my ear back on. Sure, sure. If I cut your ear off, yeah, I can't put it back on. I'm not Jesus. But if I am ashamed, and so I cannot come to the table, I cannot be held accountable I do not give the opportunity for restoration, then our relationship is permanently broken. Yeah. And that is what shame does. It isolates, it disconnects, it causes us to turn inward. But even in our turning inward, there is a disconnect from self where the true self who is actually hurting is suppressed by all of this baggage that says you are not worth being seen. Zuko. (laughs) You must look within yourself so that your true self can reveal itself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think you go as far as to say, and and I think we both acknowledge there's there's no hierarchy of sin in terms of, like, how much it separates us from God and any of that, but there are differences in consequence of sin. And so I think I remember you saying a thing of, like, I would, I would rather sin in some, like if I had the choice between two random sins, like shame or actually having like maybe even caused harm, which is a tough thing. Yeah. Ooh. I, I think I would feel shame about having caused harm, though, is the thing. Like that might build upon itself. But, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah, that I don't think there's a hierarchy of sin in the extent that Paul writes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is a great equalizing that none of us have a perfect righteousness and and perfect connection to yeah. God. And as, soon, Just, and as soon as you've breached the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole law and all of that. Absolutely. But again, that's that's in a legal framework. Yeah. In a relational framework, there are things that are more or less disconnecting. Right. Like and if, so if I cheat on my girlfriend versus if I kill her. 
that's very extreme. Big but yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Can't yes, have, that is can't very intense. With my but girlfriend yes. after that, uh, I would have gone more for like saying something mean to her versus, I guess, cheating on her is a great example of something that is pretty intense, yes, right? That's true. Um, I'm that, just trying to the sure. things that limit relationship. Yes, yeah, yeah, and and shame is something that is. I was going to say endemic, but but the word I'm looking for, I think, is more. Um, it compounds upon itself mm. that in our isolation, we internalize greater shame and our defense mechanisms that again are trying to keep us safe are telling us this is the reason why you can't be vulnerable. This is the reason you can't pursue accountability because you aren't worth it because you're bad because uh, they won't love you because they'll see right through you. You know, whatever these, these things are actually keeping you from getting to a place where you would be vulnerable, mm-hmm. where their rejection of you would cause greater harm. So you basically auto-reject. Yeah. You assume rejection and interpret that rejection through everything that is happening around you so as to keep you from what would be an actual rejection. Um, but that's not living, you know? And so in terms of my shame, you know, I have internalized this shame around sexuality that in my own male-bodiedness has very much become tied to male-bodied sexuality. In, in finding freedom to consider sex to be a beautiful thing and growing in terms of my sociological understanding of the, the frameworks of how sexual shame has repressed people, predominantly that's been female sexuality that has been repressed, that has been commodified, and um, recognizing the value and beauty of liberation in female sexuality is something that I can wholeheartedly embrace because it's not personal, it's not in my body. You know, but thinking about the ways that male-bodied sexuality has caused great harm and violence and has been domineering, mm-hmm. uh, that is something that I am still working on, on learning, mm. where I, e- even despite my lack of physical desire, there is a emotional block that would inhibit me from experiencing pleasure because of what that pleasure would mean about me in terms of how I've internalized that taking pleasure in male-bodied sexuality is being animalistic. Mm. It is being domineering. It is being, you know, like a salty. Not like a salty cracker. A salty cracker. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, yeah. You know, and so so that's to me where the question of um, how do I extricate what is sexuality versus what is trauma and what does real healing look like? Anyway, 45 minutes in. I want to get to this topic about sexual sin, though, because what I have found is in in some ways being more sexual, like I still haven't had sex, but like by being, you know, like I, I was so restricted before of all of these ideas of boundaries that needed to be had. Like my first girlfriend, I didn't even kiss her. You know, we, we weren't even touching at all for the first however long. And then once, I don't know, it was like maybe a month or so in, there's like, okay, now we'll touch hands. Like, you know, something that feels so trivial and basic. And yet to 
complexify and problematize even that. Like that was one of the most beautiful sexual experiences that I've had was just touching her hands, that it, it felt magnetic. It felt powerful. It felt intimate, you know? And now I don't feel like I can go back to that because it's become mundane. Mm-hmm. I'm not finding wonder in that mundane anymore. Bummer. I know I need to listen to my own benediction here. <laughs> but you're talking about like broke the mold. Yeah, exactly. Like, that I feel like there's been a groove that has been yes, dug. Yeah. Um, but even so, I think in my ongoing journey, in some ways pushing the envelope, not even necessarily for my own pleasure. It's not like this drive that I can't control in that way, but just in the sense of um, exploring both the novelty and then also unpacking that baggage mm-hmm. through engagement in some ways has, well, it certainly has really reframed the way that I view sexual sin, you know, that in the past, how I would have talked about sexual sin is with the initial premise that sex is a holy and beautiful thing that God has created and therefore we shouldn't misuse it. There's this idea of misusing. Mm-hmm. And the framework of my understanding of what proper use was, was like within the context of marriage. Now, again, the question of the ambiguity of what even counts as sexuality or, or sexual intimacy, you know, if you uh, look at someone with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. It's like, okay, well, how do we create a package or boundaries around what counts as physical intimacy. And I think the evangelical church has had a really hard time of doing this, mm-hmm. of trying to figure out like, well, what can we say is okay and what not when it's really so gray? Well, they, they just deny the gray. Sure. They'll draw a line and deny the gray aspects. But it's, it's wild because even things as intimate as sex itself can be emotionally intimate or not. Mm-hmm. the way that people approach it. And to me, the question that I don't have an answer to is, well, what does that have to do with spiritual intimacy? Right? Because the idea that I had around this s- sexual sin was that there's a spiritual tie that is made. You know, there's like the, the two shall be one kind of thing of like, there's there's this something happening on the spiritual level that's mm-hmm. not even necessarily physical. And, and for that reason, it's something that we need to steward with a great level of both respect and also uh trepidation yeah but the unknown or unknowableness of that Mm -hmm. means that oftentimes it's just been an assertion sure absolutely (laughs) absolutely that's been un uncritical well i guess the the way that i would think about it is you know if you eat a bunch of junk food it might taste good in the moment but then Mm -hmm. your body tells you afterward hey this didn't feel good Mm -hmm. you know like oh i feel sick right um now, the question is, if it is a spiritual junk food, in quotes here, mm-hmm. that you're consuming, you know, what does it feel spiritually? What, what is the impact? Because I have to believe that God does not create arbitrary laws for us that, <laughs> yeah. that are just it? so that we follow the is laws. Bo Burnham, who says, I'm the God who created the entire universe. Do you think I'm going to draw the line at the freaking deli aisle <laughs> in terms of, like, not eating pork? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, the, the idea of the arbitrary doesn't make sense within my understanding of a God who desires relationship and everything about the way that God creates and recreates and gives life to us is about love and relationship. And I think, I mean, it's, it's very gaslighty to say like, oh, you, you don't know or you can't know. 
like how this will impact you or or whatever. Like at the same time, that may be true. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like people who are not very in tune with their bodies. Sure. It's sure. very possible to be not very in tune with your spirituality. Yeah. yeah. And to not know how or or your emotions or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of disconnects. And that's, I think, where maturity comes in. Yeah, absolutely. And so for me then, what is the tension between shame, which again, I consider to be the greatest spiritual disconnection, and any kind of quote-unquote sexual sin, which for me right now is actually very ambiguous and, and, and not very pinned down. I've, I'm less clear on it than I felt like I was before. You know, if someone has shame and through sexual encounter, they're able to overcome that shame, to me, I see healing in that, mm-hmm. you know? And it might be healing through something that maybe is also causing harm on one level that I don't understand. Um, but if that shame is keeping them from being in relationship with themselves, their own body, their own person, and in relationship with other people, like to me, there's also a disconnection then that is happening in the relationship with God that is not liberating, that is repressive. And so the healing that they find through that sexual encounter is actually godly. It is holy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) if you've got all this like sexual repression and sexual shame and then you just like say, screw it, I'm going to like go have sex and it ends up being a healing or restorative thing of that trauma. Mm -hmm. It like, what does it mean? Or or, like, what could it mean that maybe replacing uh, a level five trauma with a level two trauma or something? A trauma is like maybe maybe it's not traumatic at all. And or maybe you you just don't know that it is or, you know, like that's really tough, but is an improvement. Yeah. But the issue that I find, and this is certainly in my story and I've heard it in other people's stories. So an example of people who have waited until marriage to have sex, then sure. they get to the marriage bedroom and they're so ashamed. Yeah. And there's a disconnect where they are ashamed having sex with their partner, with yeah, their you spouse. You cannot flip that switch in one night. No. And so... And, and maybe ever, if there aren't other things that have been effectively challenged, mm. work mm-hmm. that has been done on your spirit, on, on your framework around sex. Um, and so what does that healing journey look like then? If in, in my, like, I know for myself right now that, like, I couldn't just have sex with someone because the shame would be so great that it would not be healing. It would not be liberating. Mm-hmm. It'd be danger zone. It'd be da- yeah. So it's the idea of like, uh, say comfort zone, learning zone, danger zone. It would definitely be in danger zone. Yeah, yeah. What is it that Paul says? He says like, um, like oh, you shouldn't tie like don't have sex with a prostitute because that is to like tie your to cleave to them or something. Yeah. yeah. Ah, I really need to know <laughs> and be able to quote the Bible better. Um. Because he's like, you know, all other sins are sins against something or other, but sexual sins are sins, sins outside against. the body, right? Yeah, but, I think but, that might be it. But sexual sin is sin. Yeah, so First uh, Corinthians six eighteen: flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, their own body. Right. So I'm thinking three things, and I hope I can keep track of all of them right now. Okay, so I was conflating the prostitute one, which was saying, do not make your body one with a prostitute. Um, I think that's 1 Corinthians 7? No, six? that's also in 6. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because that... read it? Sure, if you can find it. Yeah, yeah. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting thing that I think we could maybe dive into about. The, so that's talking about spirit, that's talking about yeah, flesh, that's yeah. talking about body, that's talking about unity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's kind of this image of like your energy melding with some, like the the uh, purity culture issue is somewhat physiological, mm-hmm. uh, but it's largely spiritual. It's this idea that like sex is an attachment and like it's an attachment that's designed to be monogamous for life, all mm-hmm. of that. And so if you like have sex before marriage, you know, like you can only chew a piece of gum once, right? Like mm-hmm. you're just a chewed up piece of gum or Gross. like, uh, yeah, it's like terrible, me- terrible narratives or metaphors that I heard. Caused so much harm. Yeah. yeah. And another one is like, oh, you're just a sticky note. Like it loses its stickiness after a couple sticks. <laughs> like, do you want to be a used sticky note? Mm-hmm. No. Um, or this one of like, you know, careful who you, who you like, that's, that's kind of the physiological maybe side of things but it gets to this kind of emotional, spiritual one. There's also, like, this idea of, like, your aura. And, like, sex Mm. is one of the things that mixes your aura with another person's aura. And if you're blue and another person's, uh, like, green or something, then you're mixing auras and you, like, it's like two puddles that conjoin and you're taking away, not taking away, you're, like, you're walking away with part of them Mm. permanently. Um, And there's ideas of that, of, like, oh... Like, are you just going to be comparing now for the rest of your life? If you end up then getting married, are you just going to be comparing this person's body? Or That's that maybe a more pragmatic one. There, there's all sorts of ones, yeah. but but that spiritual one was a, a second thing that I was thinking. The last one, and we can we can return to that. I don't think there's necessarily much more to say on that one. Um, the other one that I don't think we necessarily talked about when we talked about shame Um is one of the areas that's important for unpacking the Romans clobber passage. Mm-hmm. Um, Romans 1. Romans 1, 24 to 26, 27, whatever it is, 28. Um, is this idea of social shame. Mm. So not this not this emotion of uh, like, oh, I feel like I'm bad. Yeah. Right. But, but social shame um, in terms of like this is an honor society. Yeah, being shunned, being relegated, ostracized. Yeah, yeah, and you can have you can have like communal, parental sorts of honor societies where it's like, oh, this is family shame, and you're carrying all this stuff. Rome was built largely on this idea of like sexual domination and sexual shame across the medium of gender, and it's not necessarily gender because, but but it is it it is it's weaponized masculinity. Yeah, it's weaponized male power. Um, in an explicitly penetrative, like mm. harmful, very rapey way. Um, and so the idea of shame there is as this kind of contagion that's mm. like you can you can shame someone else without you being shamed. And anyway, so I think that's just important for the conversation around sure. what Paul is saying when he says like, oh, isn't isn't it shameful to unite your body to blah, 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 blah. Um, he's not just saying like, oh, isn't it embarrassing or like convicting of bad behavior in your spirit or whatever. He's also talking about like a significant degree of Roman specific social currency. Yeah. 
And this idea of the body of Christ and, and the, the joining, I think, has both what I would consider to be an ethereal sense, this uh, spiritual level that is down to our essence, and then there's the, the sociological spiritual side of being the body. Mm-hmm. And being the early church, they were much more vulnerable to sociological rebuke and shunning in the sense of uh, if like the whole idea of like head coverings and everything like Mm. that is like, Oh, you know, if all of these women who are sex workers coming out, coming out with, with bald heads are present in our church, people are going to look at us a certain way. And that is going to cause harm to our community that is just trying to up and come. Yeah. Um, a, a greater level of persecution that would potentially, in, in Paul's fear, uh, end the church. Right. In it's its, a, stages. it's a accommodation based on social limitations of the time. And so I imagine that is certainly going into this passage about what it would mean to be membered with a prostitute and how that would be perceived upon the body of Christ. That it's not just you demonstrating yourself, but you also represent the body, mm. the church. Mm. But I think there's also a spiritual level here that I think it is worth talking so. about. It yeah, does yeah, sound yeah. like that. Um, certainly in the idea of the two shall be one flesh and uniting. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, right? That this idea of the, the, the one spirit nature, that I think we are all one spirit, that we have lost our understanding. You know, we, we are aimless and deluded to not be able to perceive that. And, and intimacy, sexual intimacy is one of the greatest ways to see ourselves in the other, to see the image of God reflected in a person through this great intimate space. Mm-hmm. And so I think the idea of pursuing that, in this case, you know, for pleasure and not intimacy, which is behind the idea of, of having sex with a sex worker, that it's not pursuing a, a, a sustainable connection, but about satiating the body's desires that is actually steering us away from the kind of connection that would be fostering of yeah. seeing God in another. Yeah, it's it's interesting. My first thought was, is this a spiritual argument or a physical argument? And I'm like, wait, but is and I mean, maybe this is my mm-hmm. persuasion as a universalist, but like, wait, there's no one who is outside of the body of Christ. Yeah. So how, like, what does it mean like this is kind of the converse of that idea. Like if if you're this is maybe Kantian ethics. Like it, you're not supposed to use people as a means to an end. Sure. Um, and so if the end is pleasure rather than like just pure pleasure in disconnect mm-hmm. from who they are, um, an exploitative or objectifying way. Right. Yeah. Right. But <laughs> maybe a correlative or like a an opposite uh, question. If you are already close with someone if you are one body with them assuming like knowing that being sexual or sexually intimate with someone is not the only way to be intimate with someone does that mean you maybe within some limitations but does that mean that like marriage isn't the uh like could you just have sex with someone who you were already like one body with or close with or is there some limitation in humanity that like marriage like we really are only designed for one or assuming maybe a poly-inclusive view of this which i would i would bend towards 
uh, figuring out and for another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, do you see kind of where I'm going? I'm having a hard time articulating. Yeah. It. So uh, the institution of marriage is that is there something unique about that context? Yeah. Sure. Uh, and you've commented before that, you know, what is biblical marriage? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, an old Testament context of marriage looks very, very different from how the church understands marriage today. Um, both in terms of age, in terms of social, uh, contractual order of parents and lineage and, um, number of people involved (laughs) number of people. Yeah, exactly. Like, Terms of Typically like, a man with many wives. Right. Assumptions about fertility. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of legacy and kin, progeny, that you, uh, you know, if you don't have mm. kids and your husband dies, then your his brother is legally obligated to marry you so that you can have children. Talk about marrying into the family, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so but also um, they didn't have this concept of engagement the way that we have an engagement period. You know, and and one of the um, questions that I've heard people talk about in in regarding sex is, well, what about when we're engaged? Mm-hmm. You know, have we already made our commitment? And you know, the question is, there's something that happens at the altar in the way that we believe something happens at baptism. That's like, do God anointed you? God uh, commissioned you for a relationship now, you know, God approves. You got the stamp of approval in the legal mm-hmm. court system of God's courts. Um, I mean, it's not a sacrament in Protestantism. Marriage. Marriage is not, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, or is it the point at which you make that commitment to one another where you say, I am leaning into you and you specifically so that there can be the fruitfulness of this oneness that we find within each other as, as we pour into each other and champion each other you know, which I would hopefully argue starts at least by engagement, that you have made that commitment. I mean, people will treat engagement differently. And so some people, like I know someone who got engaged a week into a relationship. Oh! And, and then was engaged for three years before they got married. Huh. So, you know, even the concept of engagement isn't something that's universally clear. Or people who will, like, date for years and then, like, get engaged and then get married real quick after that. Sure, sure. Like a, Like a two-month engagement or something yeah. as they're just trying to scramble together a wedding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it raises questions about the what happens at marriage, you know, the, the yeah. institution of marriage that is not a historically consistent thing. <laughs> like gender, not historically yeah, consistent. absolutely. Yeah, it, it's my exploration into queer identity and, like, the identity of God that has actually elevated my view for, for many years now, it has elevated my view of marriage, mm-hmm. um, culminating in the idea of the marriage of the body of the church to Christ mm-hmm. or the Lamb or whatever, um, but has arguably lessened my uh, degree or adherence to the social concept of marriage, mm. right? Because, like, gay marriage wasn't allowed until legally it was recognized well so that means that like lesbian couples were living together outside of marriage well (laughs) like why should some social legal distinction count it as absolutely 
Yeah. It's not what happens in the so, courthouse. So I have often said, even for many years, I've said um, marriage or marriage-like. Mm-hmm. But even then, I mean, I, I think at some point we really do need to uh, address some stuff about polyamory and some of the, the numbers aspects <laughs> of, of relationships. Yeah. Um, so I want to be direct in the last 20 or so minutes that we have with the question... What is sexual immorality that the Bible talks about? Because oh, duh. It's obviously pornoi. <laughs> Case closed. Case closed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I see exactly what you mean. Yeah. Uh, because the Bible is so emphatic. And when I say the Bible, mostly, again, I mean Paul mm-hmm. is emphatic about fleeing from sexual immorality. We've talked about the idea of defiling, sinning against your own body, mm-hmm. particularly body in a collective sense as the body of Christ. Maybe we could unpack more about what it would be to sin against your own body as just your physical body. Well, Paul is also body. pretty body negative. Yes, yes, which Maybe is also for true. understandable reasons. Um, but the idea of, you know, the sexual immorality, I think very clearly we can say adultery is wrong. That is something that is expressly called out. Right. I, I would say because it's the breaking of a loving relationship or it's yeah. the breaking of your commitment. Of your commitment or someone else's commitment. Right. You know, that if you intervene in someone else's relationship to stir up dissent so that you can be involved. Right. You know, you are causing harm to something that is presumably a beautiful thing in itself. Yeah. You know, it's not for you to, to disrupt. Um, so then idolatry is another thing that often comes up in the context of talking about sexual immorality. When Paul is, you know, giving these lists of things, flee from sexual immorality, idolatry, you know, adultery, they're clarified as separate, um, but very much in the same compartment. I think there's also some aspect of like revelry and drunkenness, a lack of control that is often part of it. Yeah. And and the reason I say all of this is, again, to contextualize our conversation about sexual immorality, that we can't just look at that term as something exempt from the context in which Paul is talking. Right. Right. Presumably, his the pr- presumably, one of the possible reasons he didn't clarify was because in his culture it would have been obvious. Mm. Um, but then we need to do as Dr. James Bronson does, and investigate um, what is the moral logic behind behind these arguments. Um, and Josephus uh, writes against homosexuality because in that culture the only like practiced or almost like practicable expression of same gender uh, sexual intercourse was rape. Um, or exploitation. I, yes. With like the, the servant pupil. Yeah. I mean, I guess they might, does it count as rape if a servant was like, is expecting to be sexually abused non-consensually once a week or whatever it is? Like, uh, yeah. Um, but Yes almost always exclusively across uh, some social hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Uh, That could be gender, that could be age, that could be Mm -hmm. um, enslavement status. Mm -hmm. Um, All that to say, Josephus uh, is also clear that, so uh, it's this kind of Roman thing to do where people would get drunk and 
have sex with each other or I don't know if it was each other as much as whatever. But there were these like orgies mm-hmm. that were parties and, and all of this stuff that Josephus was a big, uh, he didn't like, that he thought was bad. I also <laughs> agree that this is probably bad. Yeah, I mean, and Paul seems to say so too. Um, and I think if we unpack that, again, there is a hedonism. And I say hedonism in a negative sense, not to shame or judge pleasure for pleasure's sake, but the idea of a pursuit of pleasure that takes into no consideration the well-being of others. Right. It is a very um, objectifying and aggressive. It's it's acquisitive. It's it's about acquiring, you know, and kind of this idea of like... Consumptive. Yeah, yeah, that's a good word for it. And so within that context, I think almost anything is bad. But I think... Right, and that's the moral logic for why it is bad. Not because it's sex, right? Well, yeah, exactly. And and so that's that's what we need to unpack in the last (laughs) 15 minutes. (laughs) Well, we don't need to put a time limit on it. Yeah. The question then is, is sex so focused because sex is the predominant way that people are pursuing that form of hedonism and consumption or is it something specific about sex yeah sex seems special but i'll, I'll use this example of um drugs okay. like the way that people who haven't done drugs talk about drugs or the way that their society talks about drugs mm-hmm. is really overblown mm. right like and i'll, I'll say depending on like, the drug but yeah <laughs> yeah like I, I don't know if you can really talk to horrendously about meth like it is i've seen it just absolutely no 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 overblown in terms of good clarification maybe i wasn't um the effects of drugs are not as like trippy as as like like a high schooler or middle school i don't know who someone who hasn't done drugs Mm -hmm. um i guess i'm a little pessimistic and just assume that the statistics on like basic what is it like 90 99 of people have had sex by the time they're 25 really it's a lot Wow. Maybe it's not 99, but it's it's easily 90. Um, maybe in this culture, uh, in certain cultures. Sure, sure. Um, similar with, uh, like, people who viewed porn or people who have done drugs, whatever. Like, these are more pervasive than, than we talk about them being. So, assuming before that, mm-hmm. this culture makes a really big deal about sex, makes a really big deal about drugs, mm. as this desirable thing. And I'll just say from experience, they're not that big of a deal mm. once you do them. Mm. Right? There's this kind of sense of like pedestalizing um, that can end up being a letdown. Like if you're hoping that it's going to be this big like thing. And that includes sex too. Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, like if you, like it's almost idolizing in, in some way. Yeah, that is interesting to think about. Again, I mentioned idolatry earlier, but it's probably the opposite context in which Paul was talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, another intricacy of, I think, the social context of the time was um, temple prostitution. Mm. So, like, in this context, we think of the idolatry involved in in sex as, like, oh, you're you're thinking that it's, like, you're worshipping sex. Mm -hmm. In Paul's context, it was very much, like, no, you're, like, worshipping a false god or in the Old Testament context, like you're worshiping a demon through some fertility rite. Mm. 
Like these things were way more tied together. Yeah, so the the temple sex worker, which the word pornos, from which pornai, the sexual immorality that Paul is talking about, comes from, mm-hmm. you know, that's, you, you see it as being tied to a certain form of, like, idol worship? Yes. Oftentimes. I mean, the, the idea of prostitution is, is also another one of the big ones that's like, well, I think we need to unpack a little bit about what that is. The, yeah, the, the consent that goes into that. And you know this is a this is a challenging thing because there are ways of restricting sex workers' rights that is causing harm to very vulnerable populations. Right. But I also think that it needs to fit in. And again, when we're having complexities and dialectics of things that are not easily held together, there can be a way of honoring the humanity and desiring for the effectiveness of their ability to provide for themselves and their family, mm-hmm. while also saying there is such a thing as like wage. Slavery, yeah, like the the economic exploitation of someone having to perform a certain act in order for them to economically sustain themselves, mm-hmm. uh, I think extends to the vast majority of the sex industry. Not all of it. There's some people who come from a place of economic privilege who are just like, "Hey, I want to be on OnlyFans, <laughs> right? <laughs> Make extra cash or whatever." Um, and, but you know that extends to like coal mine workers, right? That extends to you know many essential workers where it's like that's probably not what they would want to do, mm-hmm. you know, and so. I think the idea of consent is a very complicated one that we have to think about on multiple levels, that you might be choosing to do something because you don't have other choices, and that doesn't make it a fully free choice. Yeah, absolutely. But I think people, and the Bible maybe too, talk about sex in this, like, what is it? I've, I've heard people say this thing of like, it is, it's holy. It's so holy. It's like mm-hmm. fire. Mm. And you're like playing with fire. Um, that That's kind of the direction that I meant of like, People make a big deal of of what it is, and I don't want to trivialize it in any in any way either. But I just want to like uphold that that issue of like, is there something special? Mm. Is there something fiery? Right? Like you know, have uh, have we talked about that lion parable? I I don't know if I've shared that. Do you want me to share it? Uh, sure. So there's this Jewish parable, the story of Jewish people. Feeling it's a small town. It's a small town, and they're they're overwhelmed by the sexual acts that are taking place, the the sense of um, sexuality that is that is taking place, and they're like, this is like a lion, and they pray to God for that to be removed from them, and God grants them that, and and it removes their sexual desire, and suddenly they have no joy. <laughs> That everything in life has lost its luster. There's no art. There's no... No beauty of any regard. And so they're like, oh my goodness, that's not what we wanted. We didn't realize how deeply these things were connected. Uh, We have it back, but maybe not as strong. (laughs) And the idea there is like, yeah, yeah, there's this voraciousness to the way that sexuality is often seen. Yeah. Did you want to add to that? So, yeah, I don't know. Just this idea of like... I don't, I, it's this tension. Like, I don't necessarily have answers. I'm just saying, on one hand, like, the, like, pedestalizing and idolizing the idea of sex is problematic. On the other hand, it's also problematic to trivialize it mm-hmm. and to, to treat it like no more than an appetite. Mm. Um, I had a, a teacher in high school who I ended up talking 
with about like uh like she was a nurse and and we we just ended up talking when I was an adult a couple of years ago um the drama teacher <laughs> and you know conversations happen uh because of that openness and her opinion on like the necessity of sex mm. and maybe she just had a very high sex drive or whatever <laughs> like she was very aloe um but she was talking about it as if it was this appetite that like mm. you need that's typically what aloe people say yeah <laughs> yeah and i'm i'm a little bit more gray than that. Yeah. Anyway, just, I don't know what to do with it. Just this idea of like, what is it about sex that is unique, if anything? Well, the interesting thing that like makes us want to protect it or guard against it or or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm gonna say two things. One, yeah. Uh, in the idea of calling it an appetite and in doing so, trivializing it. Well, I think maybe we should reconsider our thoughts about appetite as being already trivialized that we would be bringing sexuality down to that level. Like thinking about food consumption as a very holy thing. I mean, church takes place around the table, you know, in, in the, the biblical sense of breaking yeah. bread. Um, that, you know, Abraham fed the angels who are in his midst. There's like hospitality is attached to food. Yeah. Culture is attached to food. Like there's so much holiness to food. And I was thinking about this time when I was studying abroad in Argentina and there was this Italian guy there who was so frustrated at the way that other people uh, from other cultures treated food consumption. Because to them, to him at least, in his family and immediate culture, there's a sacredness to a meal, that you don't watch TV when you're eating a meal. You don't do other things. You you pay attention to the food that you're eating. You honor the, like, he, maybe it's not in a spiritual sense for him, but like the sense really of like the sacredness mm -hmm. of that meal mm. and the company that you have. Uh, and so I think that maybe we actually need to go the other way and, and re-holify appetite. <laughs> yeah, I, my main my main point there, I think that's a really good point. I, I think my main comment was that you will die if you don't eat. Mm. You will die if you don't have water. Mm -hmm. Like it's a need. Mm. More than got it, got it, got it. Yeah, which, which sex is not. There are plenty of people right. who never have sex in their life. By choice or not, right? Like yeah. you have the whole problem of incels, involuntary celibates, and the convoluted mm -hmm. sad in many ways yeah emotional scenario that they are in and the problems that they perpetuate and myths that they feed into yeah so an interesting thing about what the bible says about sex yeah because i, I was curious about that as we were talking like does the bible clarify it as something holy and everything that i can think of outside of song of songs is a negative about sex it's don't do this bad thing mm -hmm. Where's all the positive messaging? Because if it is a holy thing, it should, shouldn't the Bible be telling us that in positive terms? And not just don't break this thing because it's holy, <laughs> you know? Like, isn't that an interesting thing that the Bible doesn't really revel in the, the goodness of sex? It's just like, don't do this thing. Now, obviously, a lot of the Old Testament, these are letters to churches that are largely instructive of what not old? to do. Sorry, did I say old? Uh, New Testament. Oh, okay. Um, you know, that are largely instructive of what not to do. Yeah, And so it would make sense in the New Testament context that there probably wouldn't be a lot of space for just, like, celebrating sex and sexuality. Uh, hmm. But um, but I just, I wonder yeah. about that absence, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking most of the sexual prohibitions in the Old Testament are 
they come from this holiness code type of thing, mm-hmm. this intrinsic idea that sex is defiling. Mm. Um, like, you know, you you can have sex. It's a normal kind of thing. There, There's no idea of celibacy until Jesus kind of does it. Mm. Um, or eunuchs, but that's like forced celibacy too. But, um, and not always because the other half of eunuchs is sex slavery. So, mm. um, but still some of the restrictions is on like priests in in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and whatever it is all of those rules the the holiness restrictions the priestly codes involve rules about like don't have sex for a certain time before you're going to go do priesty things mm. because it's defiling and a ton of things are defiling but the idea that sex is inherently defiling yeah like why yeah. What is it about it? You know, and can we trivialize it to a health thing like we t- often talk about with like diseases or issues of blood or or whatever? Yeah. So a really interesting video about um uh maybe maybe the prohibition against pigs was more of a class mm. economic thing than just the like oh pigs are dirty. Yeah. Which I've always rationalized it as that. Mm. But archaeologically speaking, there's more to the picture. Uh that's fascinating. But anyway, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. No, I think I think the Old Testament context, there are a lot of cultural layers to unpack. And I also think, you yeah. know, again, when we reconsidered the Genesis story of Adam and Eve, the origin story of humanity, from the context of being written afterward to reflect on why things are the way that they are, like, oh, women have pain in childbirth. Yeah. We would imagine that that's not God's intention. And so... I really need, liked that move that we did last We need time. an explanation for why that's the case, yeah. right? Same thing with, oh, we have shame in our bodies. That doesn't seem to be in God's will and the God that we understand. So let's make a story that explains how the body went from being unshameful to shameful, yeah. you know? And I think that's actually remarkable. I also really appreciate that move. But there's another thing, um, which is the the sex shame, Right. That it's not just shame in your bodies, it's also shame in sexuality that yes. culturally they had. And so they had to reflect on, like, where did that come from, too? Yeah. I mean, in, in the Old Testament, again, and I, I realize you're kind of leaning towards New Testament questions here, but in the Old Testament, you also have, be, because it's so much more family-focused and nation-building focused, mm-hmm. I think you really get uh, some of the prohibitions are not so much prohibitions as restrictions. Um, mm. It's not like, don't ever do this. It's here's the the right way to do here's it. Here's the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. And that is procre- procreation. That the Old Testament, so much of the laws, I think, come down to making sure that there's a male heir through which to pass property, mm. specifically land. Because um, that's tied in with the, like, from very early on, the um, Israelite narrative is yeah. this land. Um, in the New Testament, though... I wonder if you kind of get an opposite issue. Number one, it's written by a dude who very well might have been ace. Um, or <laughs> like people argue that Paul may have been uh, gay. And I think I disagree. Um, like the way that he talks about sex is a similar way that I hear people who are just not really like into it, into it. <laughs> be like, I mean, I guess if you have to, <laughs> um, so keeping in mind that I think a, lar- a large portion of the context in which sex comes up in the New Testament is, one, from a dude who probably didn't have a great relationship with his body, 
mm. and was also and separately. I'm not saying these are the same or overlapping things. Um, and was ace. Also, even for non-Pauline writers of the New Testament, they were thinking that Jesus was coming back anytime. So, like, why yeah. why have families? Because there wasn't mm. great contraception, and so sex was in, was intrinsically linked to babies and stuff. Yeah, and Paul, you know, argues outside of the sexual framework also for singleness, right? With the idea that oh, if you get married, you're going to be focused on your partner, but we need to be focused on God, right? Again, in large part because of the immediacy with which they Everyone. predicted that Jesus would come back. World's freaking ending. Why would you <laughs> get bogged down in this? Why would you get bogged down in, in Why would you invest eating, in worldly things? Right, including yeah. sex. Not mm-hmm. that sex is this holy, extra holy or extra atrocious thing. Yeah. But I think there's there's also more to the idea of sexual immorality in the sense that um, you know, more than like I don't think it would be mentioned nearly as much if there wasn't something deeper there that is trying to be communicated. Yeah. Either how prolific it is and that Paul just felt like he needed to tell everyone because everyone was engaging in some kind of um, sexual immorality to his perception. Um, Could be true. But the idea of lust comes up for me too. You know, that that Paul talks about this fiery passion mm-hmm. that people have and it's like, okay, if, if you're going to have that, at least get married and that's avoid, avoiding some of the other stuff. But to me, that's like, that's still not addressing the problem. Like if you're lustful, you can have lust for your wife mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't treat her as a person or your husband or your right. partner uh, that just still views them as an object. Mm-hmm. You know, getting married doesn't solve that. Yeah. Is that <laughs> is that Paul being the mosaic equivalent of allowing divorce? Because of, yeah, is it isn't it is it better. an accommodation? Mm-hmm. That's still it's not, not good, but it's better. I think so. Yeah, but I think you're right that it is notable that in in the idea of getting rid of and this is my last main thought, unless we dig further. But there's so much more to talk about. We can just cut it off at some point. <laughs> um, that in the process of getting rid of hundreds and hundreds of laws and hundreds of like or and, and many dozens of like core. Jewish values, they pare it down to three, which eventually they gets pared down. The, what, the Christian church? Uh, Paul and Peter, but okay. yeah, the, the council in Jerusalem, I think. They pare it down initially to um, no meat with blood still in it, mm-hmm. no idle no idle stuff, and no sex, bef- no pornoi. Mm-hmm. I think it's those three. Mm. And that eventually gets just pared down to those two. No meat with blood in it, and and the, whether that's for health reasons or whether or not that's for, um, like so when Peter spiritual. had a vision of all the meat being clean, uh-huh. did that undo that no meat with blood in it? No, because I think the like blood is a different type of different way of something being unclean, right? the The blood is the life. It's not just the food. Yeah, yeah, it's. Yeah. So maybe my blood pudding was <laughs> problematic. Uh, I mean, no, because, well, right. Okay. So Paul is like, hey, actually, I don't care if you eat meat sacrificed to idols. And mm-hmm. in our modern culture, we have actually gotten rid of the blood restriction. Mm-hmm. 
um, we're just unconscious about it. Maybe it's maybe it is still spiritually bad or something in ways that we're unaware of. I mm-hmm. doubt it. Um, which means that the last remaining biblical prohibition is against sexual immorality. Mm. Why? And are there ways to get around that one too in a similar responsible way? Yeah, when you say get around, it's not to uh, escape Right. No, it's not looking for loopholes. It's not. But thinking about what is legalized. Right, rules are for opposed, babies type yeah, of thing. <laughs> sure. Yeah, the, the idea that uh, we can operate on values more than rules. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, honestly, Byron, I, I feel very unresolved. Not, oh. not, not in a bad way. In a way of like, I feel like we've opened a can of worms that I yeah. kind of want to continue. Yeah. So this may have to be a two-parter. I'm very down with you. But yeah, thanks for joining us. There's a whole lot more to do, so stick with us. In the meantime, beloved, may you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you, you. Go in peace.